you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it with me uh, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20. Again, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's uh, some copies on the back table or in your bulletin. The passage is listed in the insert. Most of the time here at Ascension, those of you who are regular attenders and members know this, most of the time we study books. Uh, It's just what we do. We do that intentionally because we want to be about the whole counsel of God, uh, as Paul told the church. It's easy to just kind of camp out on what we like, camp out on our hobby horses, but uh, we preach through books here for the most part, and so for the last year plus... We have been focusing on the book of Acts, which is a great book to study as the church, because it's about the church. It's an early history of the church, but it's not just dry history, it's history that is supposed to impact us and to teach us today. Paul, the Apostle Paul, has been traveling around the ancient world preaching the good news of what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection on earth. And as a result, that good news is creating communities. It's creating communities of followers, little pockets all over the ancient world in all these different cities, people that come together that are devoted to the reality of who Jesus is and what that means for their lives. At the time, they're just called followers of the way. But of course, we know it now as the church. We are part of the church. As we come this morning to Acts chapter 20, as we continue in this uh, walking through this book, Paul is essentially, he's done planting churches. He's been on three missionary journeys, and this is kind of the end of the third missionary journey. And we see a bit of a shift taking place, because Paul is being less of kind of this traveling, roving evangelist that's seeking to plant churches, now he's interested in being more of a pastor, more of an encouraging presence as these churches plant roots and become more firmly grounded. And so our passage this morning begins... uh, from the city of Ephesus where we've been for the last couple weeks and Paul's again on the move and he's, he's heading home. He's heading home to Jerusalem. That's his plan. But he's going to go by way of Macedonia so that he can stop at all these churches that he knows. All these churches that know him. So that he can encourage them. And so that's kind of where we are as we turn to Acts chapter 20, the first 16 verses. And so listen as I read... Uh, and follow along with me. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. After the uproar ceased, that was all the hoopla that went on last week at the temple and in the theater, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, 
Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. When he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the next day, that we, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 20, there's admittedly a lot going on in this passage. There's a lot of movement and travel, a lot of ancient cities with names that are hard to pronounce, a lot of names of people who accompanied Paul, and an incredible, almost comical story at the center of it all. Why did Luke give us this story? What are we to make of it all? Well, I think the Lord gives us this passage because as I have thought about it, as I have looked at it and studied it this week, I think it's encouraging and instructive for us in three ways, in at least three ways. And it's those three things that I want to direct your attention to this morning. I normally don't direct your attention to the title of the sermon But the three things that I want to talk about for the next few minutes are found in the title of your sermon. A broken body, healing words, and broken bread. Those are the three things that Luke draws our attention to this morning as God's people. So let's walk through them for the next few minutes. First, a broken body. A broken body which shows us that Jesus came to raise the dead to life. A broken body which shows us that Jesus came to raise the dead to life. Let's begin with this incredible story that's at the center of our passage. The story of Eutychus. 
Now, I know that one of the reasons why this story is so unbelievable for you is that because no one in this room can even conceive of falling asleep during one of my sermons. It's such a foreign thing to you that it's hard to relate to this young man, Eutychus. As difficult, amen, I like that. As difficult as it is to try to relate to Eutychus, try. Put yourself there that night. I mean, that's what Luke wants to do. Luke is there, and he wants to set the scene for you. He wants you to be there as well. This is a worship service. This is an early worship service. It's an evening service. It's not a Sunday morning service. It's an evening service. Followers of the way, followers of the way of Jesus are gathered for worship in a third story room in the city of Troas. Troas was northeast of Greece in what is modern day Turkey. There was a group of believers there gathered. And it's this room Upstairs, heat rises, right? Third story room, filled with warm bodies, filled with all these oily lamps that are just sucking the oxygen out of the room. And Paul is preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching. Luke tells us that he didn't intend to preach that long, but before he knows it, we're we're pressing up against midnight. And Eutychus, this youth, as Luke calls him in verse 12, that word in and of itself gives us kind of a feel of how old Eutychus is. He's not an adult, he's actually a youth. He's somewhere probably between 8 and 12 or 14 years old. So he's a young man, and he does what any young man, or what any of us for that matter, would do in this kind of scene. i got to get some fresh air. So Eutychus finds a window, and he sits himself in the window, and even then Paul is droning on and on, and the lamps are burning, and it's hot, and he succumbs to sleep, and he falls. And this this picturesque scene that Luke paints for us suddenly turns into this horrible thing, this PG-13 scene, as a broken body lays dead. Luke, the doctor, says he's dead. You can imagine his parents were probably the first to run down there, and and it was not a quiet scene. There were wails, there were screams as this boy lay dead. And then Paul, who had been preaching, comes down from the third story, and he walks into this scene. Paul the Apostle, Paul the Prophet, who had just been proclaiming the words of God, proves that that's indeed what he was doing. And just like prophets of the Lord before him have done, he takes the boy in his arms. If you have your Bibles, turn with me for a second to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 17. There we read of the prophet Elijah 
And it says, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And Elijah said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms And he carried him into the upper chamber and he stretched himself upon the child and he cried to the Lord and the life of the child came into him again. We could turn to 2 Kings 4 and and Elisha does much the same thing as he raises the Shunammite's son. So Paul comes and he embraces Eutychus and he says, his life is still in him, don't be alarmed. And I say, yeah, there there was some alarm in that. Suddenly the wails turned into gasps as this broken body, limp and and maybe even deformed, becomes whole as Paul takes him up. Eutychus' name means fortunate. Or we might say lucky. And we say, boy, you're not kidding, Eutychus. What could have been a night of disastrous life change becomes life-changing in the very opposite way. Now, Now, we've studied the book of Acts. Paul has healed before. We've seen the power of God. But rarely do we see the power of God, do we hear about the power of God from an eyewitness in its absolute fullest form. What do I mean by that? From death to life. Well, I think that Luke includes this story for us to remind us that, that Paul stands in this line of prophets speaking for God and, and carrying the Spirit of God and the power of God with him. No doubt this was an encouragement to God's people, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But this is also just a parable. This whole scene is just a parable of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to raise the dead to life. It's another pictorial reminder for us that while we were dead in our sin, we have been made alive by the power of God in Christ. We we sit here as broken bodies who have been made whole. So the first question that this passage demands that we ask is, is this newness of life yours? Are you alive in Christ? Have you been raised to life by the power of God? This was no sleight of hand. This was a statement of what only God could do. And not just physically, as Paul really does bring life back to a dead man, but spiritually, as we are reminded that only God can bring life to a dead heart and to a dead soul. Broken body. It's the first thing I think we need to see this morning as we come to Luke, or as we come to Acts chapter 20. But the second phrase, healing words. Healing words. Words. What do I mean by that? I mean this. We are all called, and I'm speaking to you, Church of Jesus Christ, followers of the way. We are all called 
to a ministry of encouragement. I think that's the second thing that jumps out of this passage in Acts chapter 20. Chronic pain, the lingering ache of loss, fear of what lies ahead, maybe frustration with your own battle, with indwelling sin in your life. We all need encouragement. We can't do this alone. One writer wrote that ox, uh, encouragement is the oxygen of the soul. One of the things I don't want you to miss in Acts chapter 20 is this idea, and even this word, of encouragement. We find it right off the bat in verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1. After encouraging them. And then in verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. And then in verse 12, though it's, com- though it's translated as comfort in our Bibles, it's the same Greek word. We could say in verse 12, they were not a little encouraged. In all three verses, verses 1, 2, and 12, it's the same word, the root word parakaleo. The Greek word that means to come alongside. And in fact, that's the word that the New Testament uses the most to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The one who is yours, all you who look in faith to the Lord Jesus, the one who resides in you, he is your help, he is your encouragement, he comes alongside and gives comfort and hope. You see, Paul understood that these believers, these new believers and these young churches, in order to weather the storms that would lie ahead of them, they needed to be encouraged. And so, He put his hand to that plow, and that was what he was about. He encouraged the Ephesians before he left. He encouraged every church he could hit along the way. And then he landed in Greece. It says in verse 3, we think he was actually in the city of Corinth specifically. The city of Corinth is familiar to those of you who know the Bible. We have two letters to the church at Corinth. First and Second Corinthians. Paul had already wrote four letters to them. We don't have two of the letters he wrote. But he stayed in Corinth to encourage. That church was riddled with problems. There was a lot to talk about. It was also while he was in Corinth that he wrote to Rome. To the church at Rome. And he wrote encouragement to the Romans. We have that letter as well. You see, Paul, Paul was all about a ministry of encouragement through his teaching, through his writing, even through this healing. It was done so that they might walk away. One of Luke's classic understatements, they were not a little encouraged. Not only that, don't even just think about it as Paul giving encouragement. Paul, Paul himself, I think, needed encouragement. And and this passage reminds us of that. Look at verses 4 and 5. And this this band of brothers that surrounds Paul. They're this picture of diversity within the church. Yes, they're regionally from all over the place. They're socially from different places in society. But these are the guys that are locked 
arms with Paul in this battle. One of the things we've noticed all through the book of Acts is that Paul rarely travels alone. And when he's alone, he doesn't want to be alone. He wandered into Athens alone. Do you remember that? He was discouraged. He wandered into Athens alone. And then he found Priscilla and Aquila, these, this tent-making couple with, with, with whom he had much in common. And he was bonded in Christ. And that was an encouragement to him. And, and I, I think no doubt there in the ancient world, there was a safety concern. You just didn't travel alone in the ancient world. That was just a smart thing to do. But I think it's clear from the very get-go, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and John Mark, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, and then Paul and Luke. Paul did not want to be alone. He needed somebody with him. He went through a lot of stuff. And he needed encouragement. See, this passage puts before us once again the fact that we need one another, the fact that we, were, we are all in some sense called to the ministry of encouragement. And I think encouragement, I think that word has gotten a bad rap because we hear it and it just sounds kind of fluffy and cheesy and hallmarky. But it's not. If you look up the word encourage, it's just encouragement, it's to give courage, it's to give boldness, it's to give hope. And 1 Corinthians 5.14 says, we urge you brothers, this is Paul talking, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. And we're liars if we don't acknowledge that at times we're all a little faint-hearted. We're all called to have a ministry of encouragement. But two things have to be in place in order for us to do this. As we think about taking this into our lives practically as a church. The first thing is this. You, as a people, you have got to take responsibility for one another. You've got to feel some sense of responsibility for one another. You, in some sense, have to acknowledge that I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. That we aren't just individuals renewed in a right relationship with God through Jesus, although that is true, but that we are individuals that are knit together in a community, a family of God, and that we need each other. Now, Paul, of course, he felt this responsibility for these churches. He planted these churches. He feels like a father to these churches, and he speaks to them in that way as, as the other apostles speak at times to the church. But I think we, too easily, we just kind of dismiss our obligation to one another. Somebody else will take care of that. It's not my problem. They've got family in town. They'll deal with that. And while that sometimes is the case, that indeed family in town will deal with that, or maybe you're not needed in that instance, I think that in general, we need to fight against the notion that we are not each other's keepers in any way. And that we don't in some way bear responsibility for one another. And I'm not trying to heap this, this guilt or this burden on you, 
I'm just trying to say this is what it means to be the people of God. To encourage one another. To find who's faint-hearted. I'm going to find who's faint-hearted today and I'm going to speak to them. I'm going to find out who has lost someone. Because you know what? I lost someone two years ago. And I have something that, that I can say to that person. That's the first thing I think we need to know in order to have a ministry of encouragement. But then secondly, we've got to know how to encourage. I, I love when tragic things, I, I don't love, that's a bad word, but when tragic things happen in a public setting and, and you see some newscaster or something on TV trying to find words to say, to encourage. They say stuff like, our thoughts are with you. Your thoughts are with me. Is that all you got? You got nothing with a little more teeth to it? You see, we as the people of God, we have more than just our thoughts. I mean, thoughts are good. It's good that that people are thinking about one another. But there's so much more. We encourage, as Paul encouraged, we encourage with God's promises, with God's comfort. And in part, that's why he has given you comfort, right? Second Thessalonians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. You see, giving encouragement is simply giving out of the riches that you have come to know. It's not flashy, it's very ordinary, but it can be used by God in the lives of people for extraordinary renewal and extraordinary purposes. Don't just give people your thoughts. Give them your powerful prayers. Pray with them then. And give them God's promises. Remind them of who they are. Now obviously this, saying that very statement, it presupposes that you have something to give. And it does. In order to be emptied, you've got to be filled. In order to give comfort, you have got to have been comforted yourself. It's just a reminder that we need to be communing with the Lord. And in part, we need this assembly. Which makes the last point that I want to talk about this morning all the more important. I'm thankful for many of you who have taken responsibility for me and for my wife and have encouraged us knowing that we are not immune to discouragement, that we are not immune to being faint-hearted and forgetful about God's promises. And many of you have, have taken responsibility and have responded. We need to do that more and more. Well, one final word for us this morning. It's the phrase broken bread. Broken bread. 
Not just a broken body, not just healing words, but broken bread. And really, this just highlights for us the gift of God in giving us the church. The gift of God in giving us this. Everything that's been happening since 10 o'clock. Everything that's been happening since 9 o'clock. It's a gift. And it's the engine from which encouragement comes. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, a familiar passage to many of you. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, what Luke shows us here in this story and in Paul's travels and in what happened at Troas is he shows us the beginning pattern of church life. Some 2,000 years ago, It's basic, but the key elements are here. First, they gathered on the first day of the week. They gathered on the Lord's Day. This is one of the earliest references we have to the people of God gathering on the first day of the week rather than on the Jewish Sabbath. And that was significant because it marks the fact that everything has changed with Jesus. Because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, that's when we come together to worship the triune God through Jesus, His Son. So that's the first thing we see in this passage that's instructive. That's why we meet today, and not Wednesday mornings or Thursday mornings. We meet today, on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, on Resurrection Sunday. That's what today is. But the second thing that's here in Acts 20 is the sitting under the Word. I mean, what, what, did, what did Paul do? Paul was about teaching God's Word. To the point of death, yes, but he was about teaching God's Word. That was at the center of what God's people were there to do. And then lastly, they broke bread. Not just any bread, but they broke the bread. You see, when we read about this in Acts chapter 20, it's not just them gathering together for a fellowship meal of soup and bread. No, this is them, in obedience to the Lord's command, having the Lord's Supper together. Remembering and being encouraged by what Jesus accomplished on the cross through the broken bread through the poured out wine. It's the same thing that our meal accomplishes this morning. You see, these are in a sense, the Lord's Day morning worship, gathering to hear about a book and and the ancient words of, of God from the Bible, and having small portions of, of bread and wine or juice. These are very ordinary things, and yet God has instilled in them for thousands of years. We see it here. God has instilled in them the power to encourage and to refresh and to grow His people so that they can be used for His purposes in the world. 
And I think that's the last encouragement for us, is that these things are gifts. This gathering is a gift. The gathering of God's people and the meal that we share is a necessity in our lives. This is not a box that we check to just get it out of the way for the week. It's not a duty that you should feel obligated to come here. It's your lifeblood to be here, to be encouraged, and to encourage. And so I think the the main application for us is to not neglect these things. But hopefully the fullness of the first word, the broken body and the fact that Jesus came to raise the dead to life, that the fullness of that reality in your life would overflow into the ministry of encouragement and to the life of this body, which is a gift. I think that's Luke's point. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage, this story from Acts. And I pray that as we go from this place, Lord God, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would take these words and would apply them to our hearts. That we would be challenged and encouraged at the comfort that we given in the Gospel, and the comfort that we have the privilege and the gift of giving to others. O Lord, increasingly make us the church that the world might look at us and the way we love one another and might say, wow, I've got to have some of that. Father, this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.